So Jesus, who, who though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And he took upon him the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth, under the earth, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is what we just sang about. That is what we're going to talk about today. So let's pray together. Father, I thank you for Jesus Christ. I thank you that, that though we were weak, he is strong. Though we are in darkness, he came with great light. Though we walked in death, he came and brought us life. Lord, I thank you for the finished work of Jesus on the cross, that he was willingly crucified in my place and laid in the tomb and then came alive. He, he, he took back his life because, because he's God. <laughs> and he lives. And we will too. Lord, remind us of that. Remind us of the great hope we have, not in anything else, any possession, any relationship. But Father, remind us of the great hope we have in Jesus Christ. Guide my tongue. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Please have a seat. Uh, take your Bibles. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. That's where we're going to be this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, you'll notice, and some of you may have known this already, but we, uh, we have a baptismal pool set up here in front of me that uh, serves two purposes. Um, if, if I like, completely get out of line, you can throw a ball at a target. We're just not telling you where the target is, and I can get dunked. Um, maybe. <laughs> uh, at the end of our service this morning, we have the opportunity and a privilege uh, to see a, a, a few of our folks that call Uniontown home baptized. And I'm not going to talk about that now because I will not have time to do the message then. I'll have to do that later. But um, baptism really is a picture again of what we just sang. Uh, this morning we're talking about something that isn't necessarily common sense to a lot of people in today's culture, and that's generosity. I, I, I think sometimes we hear the word generosity, and in our cynicism, we, we freak out because that's all the church ever talks about is money, right? That's all we ever talk about is finances, right? But, but I want to make sure I make this clear. Our generosity is a direct reflection on our understanding and grasp of the gospel. As we understand how generous Jesus Christ has been to us, so we'll be generous to others. Um, this isn't just about money. This is about your time. It's about your energy. It's about your talents. This is about your, your influence, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning is, is how can we be generous with those things? What, what does it look like? And what is the outcome of generosity? So if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, I love the way that Paul starts it. It's a, you can tell he's a preacher because he says in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 1, now it is, in my version it says, superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry of the saints. What he's saying is it's unnecessary for me to write to you about this ministry. It's needless for me to talk about this ministry. And then he goes on for another chapter to talk about this ministry. 
So he's a good preacher. So he says, it's superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. Verse 2 of chapter 9, he says, but I, because I know of your readiness, and I've boasted about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia, which is where the Corinthian church is located, has been ready since last year. Your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if, if some Macedonians came with me to find that you're not ready, man, we would be humiliated to, to say nothing of you for being so very confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift that you have promised so that it might be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So, so I'll be uh, upfront and honest here. This message is going to be a little bit disjointed, it may seem at times. As you're looking at this, and Paul is talking to the Corinthian church, he begins by talking about something that we haven't necessarily spent any time on yet when it comes to the, the idea of generosity, and it's this. It's understanding that the Corinthian church had a stewardship of influence. There's stewardship. Again, let's go back. That's a Christianese word. I admit that and own that. So let's go back. Stewardship means managing somebody else's property. It's good management. It's taking care of that property. And what, what Paul is doing in this context, he is writing to the Corinthian church, who is a, a pretty wealthy church in this, this area of the, of the world. And then if you go north from that uh, Corinthian area, you get to this Macedonian area, churches that are um, in, in the Philippian church, the Berean church, the Thessalonican church, and, and those churches, not wealthy at all. In fact, they're going through some extreme difficulties at the time. Another place that's going through extreme difficulty is the church in Jerusalem. And so Paul had heard about the difficulties the church in Jerusalem had been having. And so he had said, Wait, let's take up a collection. Let's, let's take up a love offering. Let's take up a, 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 an offering so that we can help these people who are in great need. And so he spread the word and the Corinthian church went bananas over it. They thought it was the greatest idea ever. Now you fast forward a year, which is where we find ourselves in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and you find that although a year before they were enthusiastic and excited about this giving, they actually had not given a gift yet. And so Paul is addressing those issues here. What he says to them here in this immediate context is, your enthusiasm, your zeal, your excitement, the end of verse 2, it stirred up the Macedonian church. They got excited when they heard that the Corinthians were excited about giving to this offering. And so because of their enthusiasm, because of their zeal, the Macedonian church got excited. They got enthusiastic. They got filled with zealousness and they began to take up an offering. And Paul says, you need to understand, you have an influence and your decision in this area of the offering created a stir among the people. It's contagious to see other people get involved and active and excited about things, isn't it? It, there, there's, a, there's a contagiousness to it. There, we, <laughs> I was, what's funny is this week, I'm blowing through my head trying to picture what, what this zeal and stirring somebody else up to zeal looks like and, and remembering back to when my kids were little and thinking, yeah, that's probably too outdated of, a, of an illustration of it. And then yesterday it happened again. So it's like, oh, it's a perfect illustration. It's, it's where one child decides out of nowhere it's time to race. There is no, there's no um, um, hints that it's coming. There's no nothing. It's just all of a sudden like, 
we're racing, and they start running. Now, normally what would happen is if it's me they're doing it against, they'd be like, yeah, I'll see you when I get there. Have a good time. <laughs> and I want to pull something, and I'll take my time. But when it's the two kids together, ooh, those are fighting words. We're racing, and you didn't give me a heads up. I'm going to catch you. And if they don't happen to catch, then you know what happens? In five minutes, they're doing something else, and all of a sudden it's like, I'm going to eat this faster than you're going to eat it. I wish it worked like, I'm going to clean my room faster than you're going to clean your room. It never seems to catch on like that. But there's this zealousness, there's this enthusiasm, and it's contagious, and it, it just kind of carries. And, and that can happen when you see somebody who is excited about something that's happening. So right now, we have a pile of people in Jolo, West Virginia, or, or making their way back here soon. And, and if you've been watching those things, those updates on Facebook, they are excited about the ministry that God has given to them in that area. I, I, okay, as crazy as it was, they departed on Wednesday? Thursday, it was Thursday. All I know is dark. Because it was 4.30 in the morning. And it's 4.30 in the morning. I'm a morning guy, but not that much of a morning guy. And I arrive over at Leibnos to say goodbye and pray for them. And, and I get there and I'm dragging. But you know who wasn't? Deb Leibno. God bless that girl. Girl's got energy like I've never seen before. And it was like, man, and so I'm literally, I'm driving to Westminster for a breakfast appointment. And as I'm driving, I'm like, yeah. What is wrong with me? I have not had coffee yet and I'm excited. It's because Deb's enthusiasm for what it was that they were about to do rubbed off on me. Can happen the other way too though, can it? Can our, not necessarily a lack of emotion or enthusiasm, but maybe our disgruntledness, our complaining spirit, our whining, We see that happen all over the place. Let me, and I want to be careful. I have no specific illustrations in my head for this, so please know that. So if this one stings, that one's the Holy Spirit, not Frank, okay? All right. It's coming home from work and complaining about your boss or your coworkers, and your children hear you. It's... um standing outside of someone's home or in the lobby or in the, the parking lot and shredding politicians. Or standing in the lobby or the parking lot and shredding the ravens. Go ahead, it's fine. There's going to be football in heaven. I don't think you'll see the ravens games there, but... Uh. Oh, snap! <laughs> they, they're just starting now. I had to get one in. Probably won't even do that one in second service. That's all right. So, um, <laughs> it, it is. It's, it's, okay, so let's, let's just, okay, love you. I love you. But I'm going to lay this out. It's, it's complaining to somebody at the church about something with the church, and that person has nothing to do with the decision, nor can they make it any better. That's contagious. It's toxic. It creates problems. You have an influence, and we all do. And you know what? My greater problem with that toxicness about talking about the church with other people isn't how it affects myself or the elders or other leadership. It's how it affects your children. We have a, a crisis on our hands, don't we? And there's a lot of discussions we could have about it. 
Or, we're bleeding kids when they get to be in college age. They're just not, we're not being able to keep them. Well, first of all, I'd say we never had them, so it's hard to keep them when you don't have them, okay? Secondly, when all they hear is mom and dad complain about the church, why in the world would they go? You have an influence. And that influence gives you a remarkable opportunity. Think about it. In an age of constant complaining, of finding fault, of bickering, in fear-mongering, and in blanket ignorant statements that are made around the world all the time, what an opportunity we have to be the light. What an opportunity we have from, from God to stand in the darkness and be the one who gives the benefit of the doubt. To stand in the middle of the darkness so overwhelmed with the grace of God in our lives and the, the thankfulness for what God has done for me in Jesus Christ that other people see it and take notice. Not of me, but of someone that's in me. So what does that look like? We need to steward our influence well. We need to manage our influence well. So a very practical application of this is be careful with what you post on social media. Be careful with what you're giving approval to on social media by liking it or sharing it or posting it. Um, <laughs> some of us aren't aware of when we click a button, how many people actually see that. Um, I was reminded of that in the last couple of weeks. Somebody who I love and respect a great deal liked something in order to file it so that they go back and find it again. Problem is, is I don't get that explanation and I see this thing pop up liked and it's like, be careful of your influence. It means to, to, to pray for your church and the church leadership with your kids. It means to honor your boss and your coworkers, even in your own home. It means to pray for the president. You heard that, right? Something we're commanded to do. Have you? Don't be the one who posts, talks, whines, complains, and berates the politicians. Be the one who's obedient to what God's called us to do and prays for them. But, but let's, let's get back to the, the topic at hand. So how do I manage my influence in the area of generosity? It means demonstrate hospitality and service and generosity in and around and with your family, with your coworkers, with your neighbors. Do it with the understanding that your influence affects other people. And when you do it, do it with a certain spirit. Um, let me hit a few of these that are mentioned. First of all, in verse 5, he says, the spirit of generosity is not one that is exercised as an exaction, is the end of verse 5. The idea of that word, um, there's actually two ways to look at it, and the root of that is greed. And so, so I've weighed and measured and wrestled with which, which way this word goes, and I, I think it actually has application both ways, so I'm going to deal with both of them. I think, I think it can mean don't be generous okay, with a spirit of expectation that you're going to get something in return for your generosity. The idea is this. I'm going to give in an offering, and, and the church will then owe me. Or I'm going to give in the offering so that at the end of the year I get a giving statement and I can deduct all this from my taxes. That's not the spirit of generosity. That's actually a spirit of greed that's originating in you. I'm not saying don't take advantage of the perks that we get. Absolutely take advantage of it. 
But don't allow that to be the motive of your generosity. The other side of exaction is somebody else's greed. They come to you and they're going to force you to give to them. The idea is, is taking a rag, a damp rag, and, and wringing it out and getting whatever they can out of you. And, and Paul says, listen, don't, don't allow this to be me standing up in front of you going, come on, let's do this. Come on, let's do this. So Uniontown, don't allow that to be what you're hearing from me right now. So, so, so our spirit in generosity, our motives in generosity cannot be one of exaction. Or if you go down to verse 7, it's not to be done reluctantly. The idea is to give out of sorrow with sad feelings. It's giving with regret. When you give with regret, that, that tends to mean you think you're giving away something that you think is yours. I'm never going to get that back again. That was a lesson, a valuable lesson I learned in high school. I lived in a dorm in high school, and one of the most valuable lessons I learned was when you lend something to somebody, don't expect to ever see it again. Just reality. So as long as you're good with that, then you can give with the right spirit. You can give with that spirit, too, when you understand that what you're lending them isn't actually yours. It's God's. Cattle on a thousand hills. Everything you see has been created and maintained by him. He owns it all, and he has given it to you to manage, not to possess. So we don't do it that way. We don't do it in verse 7 out of compulsion, under compulsion. The idea is under pressure. Being um, forced to give under compulsion is, is um, kind of the picture of, of you being accosted by the um, um, Girl Scouts. I love Girl Scout cookies, but the guilt. Would you buy my cookies, please? No. You can't say no. And for me, it was, we had a, a guy across the street, a young man uh, who was a senior in high school, and he'd come over, and he, oh, he got me every time. He sold me these coupon books because they're fundraiser for high school. Here's a coupon book. Would you like to? Now, listen, if any of you come and try to sell this to me, I'm saying no. I'm telling you now. I'm just revealing my weakness. Don't take advantage of it. Okay? So the young man would come and be like, would you buy a coupon book? I'm like, sure. So I'd drop 20, 30 bucks on it and then never use one single coupon. And my wife would be like, seriously? I'm like, ah, it's a good cause. I'm encouraging the kid across the street. Kid graduates from high school. His little brother that year. <laughs> you want to give out of compulsion? There it is. Sense of duty. I have to. May that not be our spirit here. I have to. No, instead, may our generosity be, the end of verse 5, a willing gift. It's a choice that we've made ahead of time. We have decided it in our own heart, verse 7 says. The picture is instead of that wringing out of the water from the rag, it's taking that bucket of water and just pouring it out. It's that willingness to, 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 to give it. It's, 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 not, it's also the idea of a willing gift is also not a last-minute gift where you come and sit and they're like, and, and now's the time for our offering. And you're like, oh, man, I didn't think about that. What do I? Got a couple in here. There you go. That, that tends, actually, to be honest with you, that tends to be a greater in size gift than you anticipate. It's usually not you throwing nickels because people are looking. But it's still not what honors God. Instead, a willing gift is one that is intentional. It comes with, 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 with forethought. It comes with understanding. It comes with preparation. And the final thing he says is this. It's, it's, it's cheerful giving, verse 7. That word cheerful in the Greek is actually where we get the word for hilarious. The, the Greek word is hilaros. 
Hilarious. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to have an offering based on laughter in here. Although that would be kind of cool, but, but that's not what this is pointing. It's, it's not even the idea that your offering, giving your offering brings a smile to your own face. It's, it's the picture of when you have the opportunity to be generous. It's the picture of the one who knows what's been given to them. It's the one who knows that they should be and they are rightly overwhelmed at the opportunity to be generous because they shouldn't have that opportunity. They're joyfully committed. They're understanding what, that God is generous, that everything is a gift from him. They, they, they know that God has given you everything that you've got. Um, and, and, and so you, you gladly give it. You're gladly generous with it because, because you're a good manager of the things that God has given you. Let me be clear. You're a good manager of the things that God has given you, not like a stockbroker manager, but like a public relations manager. And, and, and there's some problems with, with that illustration, but, but it's not like I'm going to invest in this so it grows and gets much bigger, and then, oh, look at it. No, it's public relations. It's look at everything that God has given me. You take some. You take some. Look, don't look at me, man. Look at the God who gave that to me. That's what it means to be a, a cheerful giver. And when you do this, there is a shocking outcome to generosity. There's a blessing. There is a blessing for you when you are generous. Don't turn me off right now. It's so important that you don't check out. Because this blessing that is promised when you are generous is not prosperity theology. Um, they call it the prosperity gospel. I'll be honest with you, it is no gospel because it isn't true. God doesn't desire that you have more money or more peace or better health, an amazing return on your dollar. It's not what God desires for you. You want proof? Let's, let's look through church history. Look at all of the incredible saints of old, faithful even to death. The fact that they were put to death means prosperity theology falls flat. Let's look around the world today. Let's use, uh, I'll use North Korea as an example. Let's look to North Korea and then let's look to find the believers who are living in, G in, in North Korea following Jesus Christ and they are emaciated as they sit in prison because of their testimony. Prosperity theology would say they don't have a strong enough faith. Let's look at our immediate context, the Macedonian church, this church who, who was in a severe test of affliction and yet was generous, who was incredibly impoverished and yet continued to give above what they were able. In the end, what did happen? Did, did God come and fill up their bank accounts? Did God come and remove all the persecution? No. After their generosity, they remained in a severe test of affliction. They remained in great poverty. The teaching that if people had just had better faith, their bank accounts would be fuller, their health would be better, their relationships would be better, is 100% pure, fresh, going to use a Bible word, dung. Let's look at the words of Jesus. The one who would find their life needs to lose it. Pick up your cross, follow me. Man, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. 
sell all your possessions and give it to the poor. See, the prosperity movement is at odds with the, the, the current experience of faithful believers around the world. The, it's at odds with the historical church, and it's at odds with the very words of Christ. They take, they take this principle that's found here in 2 Corinthians 9, and they, they twist it, and they make life about us. So, so I mean, it's very clear, the, <clears throat> excuse me, the principle is right here. Whoever sows sparingly, reaps sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully, reaps bountifully. The idea is you, you put a little in the ground, you're only going to get a little at the end of the harvest. You put a lot in the ground, you're going to get a lot more at the end of the harvest. But, but the problem is, is that they're looking at that principle, they're saying, see, that's an investment in your portfolio. If you give a little to God, then your 401k is going to explode. Wrong. When you... S- steward or manage generously. Everything that God has given you, it is true. If I steward this little bit, I'm going to get a lot more. But the, the, the faulty thinking is that lot more is for me to enjoy. It's not. That lot more is for me to manage well again. This is, uh, I'm being faithful in the little things that God says, if you're faithful in the little, I'm going to give you much more because you have proven that you understand how this works. Not, I've been faithful to little things, I'm going to give you a lot more because you deserve a break. Wonderful retirement, great vacations, all the things you ever want to buy. No, because God knows that you're going to manage his resources well. Matthew 25 tells us that story, that parable about the, 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 the leader who goes away, the owner who goes away, and he says, okay, here's five talents for you, here's two for you, here's one for you. Uh, I'm going to give these to you to manage while I am gone. And you know the story, the one with five, he goes and he says, oh, look, I, I got five in return. And, and, and Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. Here's two. Oh, well done, good and faithful servant. Here's one. I hid it because I was scared. I didn't give you that to hide it. I didn't give that to you to protect. I gave that to you to manage. So the one who was faithful is given more to manage. We've got to get away from the idea of investment thinking when it comes to hearing about sowing and reaping. We've got to stop looking at this as a 401k strategy, man. Because if you look at it this way, you are selling yourself short. I'm going to settle for material prosperity. Absolutely not, man. We we are promised something so much better. See, the outcome of generosity is 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 hard to put into words. It's 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 so overwhelming. It's 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 big. The the blessing you get from managing God's property well isn't a couple of lousy dollars in your account. You get the very smile of God. Think about that. This verse has blown my mind for a long time. And you look at it in this context, it's like, if you sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. If you sow bountifully, you're going to reap bountifully. But listen, God loves a cheerful giver. So, so, So think about it. God and I are good because of what Jesus did, not because of my generosity. Okay, so, so God and I are good. It has nothing to do with generosity that is separate. So my generosity isn't gaining myself a standing before God. I've been given my standing before God because of what Jesus did on the cross for my sins. Okay, so, so my generosity has no bearing on that whatsoever. But in being a faithful and a generous manager of what God's given me, I get to reap God's good pleasure. I have a desire to put a smile on the face of my wife, Stephanie. 
That, that is, I mean, that, okay, let's, let's just be clear. That is one of my personality's greatest desires is to put a smile on everybody's face. That's, that's this goofy personality disorder that I have. I'm sure of it, but it's, it's all right. <laughs> but in particular, my wife. There is nothing worse than getting to the week before her birthday, or I'm just going to shoot honest, Christmas Eve day, and have no idea where to go, and what to get her. Uh, I want a reaction from her. I don't want, oh, and she knows, I I don't want, oh, that's okay. I know you love me. I just want to be with you. Yeah. (laughs) And I want to give her a gift that blows her mind. I want to give her a gift that makes her laugh. Even that uncomfortable, oh, this is too much giggle. I want to give her a gift that brings a tear to her eye. I, I, because, because here, Think about it. I, I have no problem whatsoever doing things in my sinfulness and my selfishness that bring other tears to her eyes. I have this desire in my heart to do something for the woman that I love to put a smile on her face. So when she tells me what that is, why wouldn't I do it? A number of years ago now, leading up to her birthday, I must have asked 42 times. And she kept giving the same answer and I wasn't buying it. And finally she's like, you asked what I wanted, told you what I wanted. So the day before her birthday, I went to the hardware store Not lying. And I got her one of them saws. And I'm walking out, and somebody's like, hey, hey, nice saw. I'm like, nah, it's for my wife. I know, I know. But it's not about you. It's not about your wife. It's about my girl. What she wants. If she said it would make her happy. Why in the world wouldn't I do it? God loves a cheerful giver. If it says God loves it, why in the world wouldn't we do it? I think Part of the reason is because we've moved ourselves into the seat of the one who should be pleased. I'm not getting Steph a chop saw. There's absolutely no way because I'd much rather go and see a hockey game. So, hey, you got tickets to the hockey game. We do the same thing with God. Somehow we have become the object of our greatest giving, even though, even though God himself loved us and sent his son while we walked in darkness to make a way for us back to God the Father. And he did that through the broken and shed blood of Jesus Christ. And he did it willingly. Our generosity needs to be properly motivated out of an understanding of the greatest act of generosity the world has ever seen. That as you walked in darkness in brokenness, in your sin sickness, God showed 
up and rescued you. (laughs) You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty you might be made rich. That is the greatest act of generosity humankind will ever see. And there is nothing you can do to earn it because it costs too much. And there's nothing you could do to deserve it because you are far too guilty before him. But Jesus rescued you. And if you are in him, which means you have confessed with your mouth that Jesus is the son of God, that he came and he died in your place for your sins, that he rose again from the dead. If you are in Jesus Christ, then you've experienced the greatest act of generosity ever. And a heart of gratefulness seeks to tell everybody around him about it. How generous are you? Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you that you love us with an unthinkable love. Father, I thank you that in Christ, we're complete, we're washed, we're reborn. (laughs) Father, that in Christ, we have everything we need. God, I thank you that in Christ, our sins have been forgiven, that in Christ, we have a relationship with you that'll never be shaken. Lord, I pray that as we continue to to gaze at you, that we would continue to be blown away by the grace that you've poured out for us. May we be a generous people, not because we need money, but because we have a God and a Savior who loves us, and we want the world to see it. May we picture his generosity well. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.